Mountain Hill Radio contains graphic language and scenes some listeners may find troubling. Listener discretion is advised. Everything you are about to hear is absolutely fictional. The town of Mountain Hill is just that, a town. The people of Mountain Hill are just people, and never has there been a true case of a monster stealing a human's skin. The forests do not contain fairy creatures from another world, the streets are not terrorized by monsters who only come out at night, and the water is perfectly safe to swim in. You're safe here. We promise. This is Mountain Hill Radio. and some total stranger glance at each other, clearly baffled to find her back in town after, well, after everything. She can't blame them for their confusion. If she were in their shoes, she absolutely would have believed she was never coming back. She can't really believe she's back either. Dorothy? Lyra asks, taking a step forward. You have the most perfect timing of anyone I've ever met in my life. Dorothy raises a brow, glancing around the street behind her. Do I want to know? Probably not, Lara smiles. I'm just happy to see you. She can't exactly say she feels the same, but Dorothy nods at the sentiment anyway. We should probably get to Lost Fiction so we can debrief and talk about what we all saw, Lara says. Dorothy maneuvers her bike so the front tire rests against the curb, out of the way of any vehicles should someone potentially drive through town this early in the morning. Or is it late at night? She's never sure when that line gets crossed. Is it at 3am that you're no longer up late but up early? Or is it later than that? Can she still consider it a late night if it's 5am and people are stirring? She knows what Andy would have said. Something she'd said whenever they had this exact conversation. If you're still awake from the day before, then no matter how late it is in the day, even if the sun is up and you're eating breakfast, you're up late. But if you wake up at three in the morning, it's early. It's simple. Dorothy bites back her smile at the memory of her cousin, sitting with a mug of tea in her hands as they bickered about stupid shit early in the morning, or, in most cases for Andy, late at night. It's been a difficult transition, back into the life she lived before. Going from working gig to gig, lending her services out as a security guard for unimportant people with far too much money to burn, to traveling the country again, is much harder than she initially expected it to be. Missing Andy has been the worst of it, of course, but she knows that pain will never truly go away. It'll get easier to manage, sure, but it will always exist. 
a small hole wearing itself into her heart until the day she dies. Her back aches, and her entire body is sore from hours spent on the road, stopping only to refuel herself or the bike. She's been traveling the past few weeks, has been all over the entire East Coast, collecting on debts owed and calling in favors long since past their expiration date. There hasn't been a single moment of the last few weeks she hasn't looked over her shoulder, watching for the man she knows will be looking for her, and she knows he won't stop until he finds her. This is the true reason she returned to Mountain Hill. Knowing what she does about the town, and the fact that it just doesn't exist on any map, she's hoping he'll eventually give up once he loses her trail somewhere along the freeway. But as the four of them settle in at the table in the break room at Lost Fiction, the story she tells is a little different, but still the truth. Albeit an abridged, watered-down version that doesn't include the fact that she's been running for her life for the past month. She doesn't think the three of them can handle the type of chaos she's dragging behind her, and she can only help they never find out the truth. I ran, and I rode my bike, and I drove and drove until I thought I couldn't drive anymore. But it didn't matter. I couldn't not feel the draw to this place. It's like, like, Mountain Hill has a grip around my throat, and I couldn't breathe properly until I came back here, she says, as the other three scrutinize her. She was introduced to the tall lumberjack-looking fella. Rufus Stevens, delivery person by day, monster fighter by night, when they first entered the store. He's been watching her intently, and she's trying not to notice the way he is trying to read her, as if she were the type of person to have her secrets written plainly across her face. She's not, and he isn't going to learn anything by watching her, but it'll be entertaining to watch him try. We're glad to have you back, Dorothy, Lyra says, smiling brightly. She seems to be the only one to feel that way. Dorothy can feel Rufus and Collins' distrusting eyes on her. They may need her here, but they aren't totally sure yet whether they want her here. She can work with that, and she wants to. She wasn't lying when she said she was drawn to this place. But she also just isn't really sure what to do with herself now that she's not taking care of Andy. She could fall back into the life she used to live, and it would be so easy to do so. To just shut herself off from her emotions and become the incarnation of chaos that she once was. She could lose herself to the darkness and never resurface. She doesn't want that, though, and damn if that isn't the part that hurts the most. Let's get Dorothy up to speed, Lyra says, drawing Dorothy from her grim thoughts. She listens intently as the three of them explain how things have been going the past month since Dorothy ran. We'll show you around town, and we'll set up new patrols now that you're here, and we'll have four people to cover the entire town instead of just three. I want to make sure you're really prepared for this, though, so you won't be patrolling alone for the first little while. We want to teach you about all the creatures, but reading from the Codex will only take you so far in learning about them. Fighting them is really where you learn the most. Lyra pauses, glancing at the two men on either side of her. Do you two have anything to add? Colin shrugs, and Dorothy vaguely recalls that he was incredibly shy the first time they met. Rufus leans forward, his large arms folded on the table. What weapons do you use? Dorothy bites back her smile. It isn't her nice smile that she gives to strangers, nor the smile she would give only to Andy. This smile is one she only ever used to strike fear into the hearts of folks who'd crossed her. She may be ruthless, but she's still trying to make friends here. It wouldn't do her any good at all to make them dislike her right now. Knives, she tells him. Mama also tried to get me into archery when I was young, wanted me to compete. I didn't do so good when it came to following rules, though. 
but I can still shoot a bow if I need to. Rufus nods, looking almost impressed by her answer. He turns to Lyra. So we all have some skill or another. How interesting. We were called here for a reason, Lyra says, and she sounds as if she genuinely believes that. Whatever force called us here, whether it be fate or something else, knew we would have the strength to wield what skills we have at our disposal. I didn't see either of you that night. I was too out of it. I remember Colin helping me up, then running through the woods until Lyra picked me up and carried me. Then it's kind of fuzzy for a minute until I went back and killed three of those bastards. They weren't dead, Colin says, and the three of them turn to look at him. He fortifies himself, refusing to shrink under their stares. These are his friends, after all. Well, at least two of them are, and he's gotten so comfortable around them and around Tilly and Mrs. Bell and Renford that he refuses to let his anxiety rule him. This bravery might be temporary, but he isn't going to let go of it just yet. He looks at Dorothy. You hurt them enough that they reverted back to their natural states, but they didn't die. Lyra and I went back a few days later to check the area out, and the dreadwoods were gone. Dorothy's mask of bravado cracks, and for a split second, Colin sees the vulnerable woman he found all those weeks ago. It's only a second, but it's enough that Colin decides he can trust her. She's playing a part, pretending she's fine when she's so clearly torn apart by being here, but being surrounded by the people who were too late to save her cousin. She has survivor's guilt, Colin realizes. He tucks that piece of information away for later. He doesn't know a lot about survivor's guilt, but he wants to find out. He wants to do what he can to help her, even if it's just the bare minimum. What skill do you guys have? Dorothy asks, changing the subject. Colin knows she's deflecting, but decides to let it go for now. They just got Dorothy back. There's no reason to scare her off again by pushing her too hard. I fight with a softball bat, Lara says. Colin has magic, and Rufus uses an axe. Magic? Dorothy asks, looking at Colin. Like, real magic? Colin takes a deep breath, holding up his hand and concentrating until a small ball of water appears, floating in midair above his palm. He wills it to freeze, and the ball of water drops into his hand, now a ball of pure ice. He hands it over to Dorothy, who holds it and stares in wonder. That's cool as hell, she says, tossing the ball in the air and catching it. Did you have magic before coming here? He shakes his head. Nope, and none of us know where it came from either. Interesting, she says, tossing the ball and catching it again. Just then, the bell above the front door rings, and Rufus gets up to greet the newcomers. This has become part of their routine. Renford, Mrs. Bell, and Tilly come to Lost Fiction when the sun begins to rise, and Colin, Lyra, and Rufus tell them everything that happened overnight. Hey, Rufus says, hugging Mrs. Bell and shaking Renford's hand. I'm happy to see you guys. Tonight was a rough one. Tilly waves politely at Rufus before making her way back to the office. He knows she's going to make sure Lyra's alright, and lets her go without a word. What happened? Renford asks, helping Mrs. Bell out of her long coat. A lot, Rufus says. Come on back, Lyra will fill you in on everything. Rufus doesn't miss the surprise on their faces when they finally see Dorothy. Mrs. Bell is the first one to fix her expression to one of delight as she approaches the woman. Is it alright to hug you? she asks. Dorothy nods and stands, accepting a big hug from Mrs. Bell. She awkwardly pats the older woman on the back, and Rufus wonders when the last time she hugged anybody was. It's good to see you, Mrs. Bell says as she pulls away from the hug. Now, what's this about a rough night? 
Lyra, Colin, and Rufus launch into a play-by-play of everything that happened tonight, starting from when they learned about the missing boy and ending when Dorothy showed up and scared the mysterious creatures away. I really did show up just in time, didn't I? Dorothy asks when they finish telling their story. Lyra nods grimly. We don't know what the hell those things were, Lyra says to Mrs. Bell. Have you heard of anything like that? No, Mrs. Bell says, shaking her head. Certainly not anything that could be beheaded and still walk. And you said they had poison claws? She asks, looking at Colin. Lyra hadn't known that particular part of their night before now, and it makes her feel a little sick to know Rufus was lying there, dying, and neither of them knew it. She hates that they split up, and she's trying hard not to beat herself up about it. There was no way she could have known something like that would happen. It's part of the job description, facing horrifying dangers and rolling with it. But still, she never would have been able to forgive herself if Rufus had died tonight. When I healed Rufus, my magic detected some sort of poison in his system. Curare? I don't know anything about it, I've never even heard of it, but my magic somehow knew what it was and knew how to clean it out of him. Colin looks at Rufus. I don't know how I did it. All I know is I'm glad it worked. Me too, my friend, Rufus says, reaching over and squeezing Colin's shoulder. I can never repay what you did for me. Don't worry about it, Colin says. You're my friend. Rufus's heart warms at those words. It took some time, but Colin finally managed to open up to him over the past few weeks. They've talked a little bit about his brother, though that is still a sore spot for him, and Rufus hasn't pushed. He's just happy that Colin feels comfortable enough to confide in him at all. What about the woman on the beach? Dorothy asks. Rufus looks at her. You said you saw a woman on the beach. He nods. I didn't recognize her as anyone from town. I thought she might have been a tourist, but something tells me that's not the case either. Have you ever seen any creatures that look... human? He asks Renford and Mrs. Bell. They both shake their heads. No, all the creatures we've seen have been pretty creature-like, Renford says. Though that certainly doesn't mean it's impossible. Did the creature seem at all interested in attacking the woman? Lyra asks. Rufus thinks back, recalling how the creature climbed out of the water and seemed wholly focused on him. No, it didn't even look at her. They all mull that over for a moment. What if she came from the other world? Lyra asks. Is that possible? It could be, Mrs. Bell says. I mean, in some way, perhaps the creatures in the other world are like animals on Earth? Sentient, but not aware like humans. It could make sense that there is some sort of higher life form there. We need to find that woman. Lyra rises, collecting a pen and paper from one of the various drawers in the room and handing it to Rufus. Write down everything you remember about her. We all need to keep an eye out for her. It's possible that the sun doesn't affect her like it does the other creatures, and perhaps that's how Sammy disappeared during daylight hours. Tilly's eyes widen. Do you think that's what happened? Lyra sighs, shaking her head. I really don't know what to think, but right now, this is all we have to go on. Colin, you need to get as much description as you can remember about the creatures and their abilities written down in the Codex. And Renford? Yes. I can't imagine these creatures, whatever the hell they are, aren't weak to iron. We need to track some iron trinkets down for the four of us to carry around, in case those things attack again. That way, even if we can't kill them, we can keep them from hurting us. At least for the time being. He nods. 
I'm sure I've got some stuff lying around the house. I'll bring y'all what I can. Does anyone have anything they need to add? She asks. When everyone shakes their head, she says, All right, get home, get some rest, and we'll meet back up for dinner this evening. Uh, where should I go? Dorothy asks Lyra while everyone is shuffling around. Colin already disappeared upstairs, and Ruth is left with Tilly. Renford and Mrs. Bell are in the front of the store, preparing to open for the day. Lyra feels the weight of responsibility rest on her shoulders, but she doesn't let it show. She's exhausted, and wants nothing more than to crawl into her bed and sleep for several hours. Last night was far more eventful than their nights have been lately, and that's saying something. She'll probably only end up working for a few hours in the evening, before the sun finally begins to set and they'll have to go out all over again. Well, I'm not entirely sure. Are you planning on moving to town? She asks. Dorothy nods. I don't have anywhere else to go, and, uh, I don't really see the point in leaving. Lyra can't deny that she feels relieved to hear Dorothy's planning on staying. She's still anxious that the woman will up and run again, but she doesn't want to be negative about this. And besides, her visions clearly portrayed four of them fighting the creatures. Dorothy would stay, but it would take some fighting to keep her here. Well, Rufus just recently started renting a place. How about later this afternoon you stop by and ask him about it? I'm sure he'll introduce you to the man he's renting from. And there are plenty of places to apply if you need work. I saw the diner, Dorothy says. Do you think they'd hire me? I'm sure they would. Over the last month, there has been a huge increase in tourist activity in town. I know they could use the help. Lyra shrugs. Rufus also has a delivery business he runs with his siblings. I'm sure he might have some work available if you asked. I'll apply at the diner and find out what Rufus knows, Dorothy says. Thanks, Lyra. I know I messed things up for you guys when I left, after y'all were nothing but kind to me, and I plan on making it up to you. There's no need. We all understand that you needed time, and we were all willing to wait for you to come back. And if you'd never come back, we all would have understood. What you went through... Lyra shakes her head. We're happy to have you back, Dorothy. I'm happy to be back, she says, and Lyra detects that she means it. I'm going to go walk around town for a bit, try to get familiar with the area. Then I'll head over to the diner once they open and see about applying. Where does Rufus live? Lyra scrubbles down his address and gives Dorothy the slip of paper. I'm sure he'll be more than happy to help. He's a total sweetheart. Dorothy smiles. Thanks again, she says, tucking the paper into her pocket. I'll see you later. Where are we meeting anyways? We'll meet here and Colin can drive us to the Bell's place for dinner. Okay, sounds great. I guess I'll see you later then. Lyra nods. I'll see you later, Dorothy. Dorothy leaves, and Lara heads out into the front of the store, waving at the bells before she makes the trek up to her and Colin's shared apartment. Colin is already sound asleep on the couch, the journal he's been using to catalog the creatures lying open on his chest, his pen dangling from his fingers as his arm hangs off the side of the couch. Lara smiles at the image. Colin has become like a younger brother to her, a sibling she never knew she wanted. Growing up as an only child was fun, until it wasn't. Her parents were never around, and the only real relationships Lyra had for a while were with the people her parents paid to clean the house. It wasn't until she met Jennifer that she finally felt like she belonged somewhere. She'd been craving human connection so much, she knew that was what allowed her to ignore the several red flags that came up while she was dating Jennifer. 
She didn't even really know what to look for, what kind of behaviors a romantic partner was supposed to exhibit. It's been months, but Lyra is still gutted every time she thinks about how Jennifer took advantage of her naive nature. She really did love the woman, and still finds herself missing her from time to time. But then she spends time with Colin, or Rufus, or Tilly, or the Bells, and she realizes that she didn't know what love was, familial or platonic, until she had these people in her life. Lyra heads back into her bedroom, shutting the door softly before she changes into her pajamas and climbs into bed. As she drifts off to sleep, she feels a sense of peace wash over her. Things are going to be alright. everyone, this is Raven, host and story writer of Mountain Hill Radio. A couple quick reminders, you can find information about the show on Facebook by searching Mountain Hill Radio, on Instagram by searching at Mountain Hill Radio Podcast, and on TikTok at Mountain Hill Radio Pod. You can also find the show on Twitter by searching for Mountain Hill Radio. Your support these past few months has seriously meant the world to me, and this show exists because you decided to give it a chance and keep listening after episode one. I just wanted to say thank you. Your support of this show seriously means the absolute world to me, and it genuinely brings such a huge smile to my face and makes me so happy to see how the show has affected people. Um, I have a favor to ask you. If you enjoy the show, would you pretty, pretty please post about it, or even send it to a friend or family member. The biggest way you can help get more people involved in the show is by posting about it or telling people about it. If you do post or tweet about the show, make sure to use the Mountain Hill Radio hashtag so I can see it and share it also. Um, And if you are listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, the best way to get more people to see it is by leaving a review. These reviews help let Apple know people enjoy the podcast, and they'll begin showing it to other people who might also enjoy it. Every little thing you do helps, and I am so incredibly grateful to all of you for your constant support. Uh, You can also now rate your favorite podcasts on Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, and it seriously helps me out in a big way. Finally, all music featured in the show is produced by Zach Bradshaw. You can find him by searching for Nautilus of the Tide on Instagram and all streaming platforms. Please take a minute to go find his music and give it all a listen. He is seriously so talented, and his involvement with Mountain Hill Radio has made this show so much more fun to make. That wraps up all the announcements I had to make. Uh, Don't forget to follow the page on social media so you don't miss out on any announcements. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple or Spotify as well. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode.
Rufus has spent the past several hours sorting through files at his desk. He has too much energy to sleep. It's like, when Colin healed him, somehow that healing gave him an extra boost of energy. Like a shot of espresso straight into his veins. Besides, even if that weren't the case, his mind is too busy to let him sleep. He can't stop thinking about the details of the case revolving around Sammy Rowenfeld. It's familiar in a way that makes him feel sick to his stomach, and he knows without needing it confirmed that this isn't the first time a young child has gone missing. According to the journals, the elemental cycles renew every 24 years. That number has stuck in his head, echoing over and over as he comes through all the boxes that contain the things he hasn't managed to get around to unpacking. Things from his past that his family didn't know he had, remnants of a life they wished to forget. Finally, after a few hours of searching, he found what he was looking for, and he's been staring blankly at it ever since. The folder is old, bent at the edges, with coffee ring stains dotting its surface. Rufus isn't sure exactly when those stains were made, but he knows he's the one who made them. After all, he's the only one who knows this folder even exists. He flips it open, feeling sorrow paying in his chest as he reads the name scrawled across the first page. Lucas Stevens, age 6, last seen at Greensland Park. Faded memories swim to the surface then, of a young boy with bright red hair and startling blue eyes, laughing as he and his older cousin ran through the park. Rufus was five years older than Lucas, but he loved spending time with his younger cousin regardless. He always got along better with Lucas than with his brother and sister, and spent a majority of his afternoons with him during the summer, or in the evenings during the school year. They liked to play games where they went on great adventures, sailing across the sea as pirates, or fighting dragons and saving damsels in distress. There was never a dull moment those days, when Rufus was allowed to take Lucas to the park. But then, he got sick. Rufus remembers the first time he had a coughing fit, one of the days he and Lucas were running through the park. It hit him so hard and so suddenly, it knocked him to his knees. Lucas heard his coughing and ran to find an adult, who then ran to find Rufus's parents. His coughing fit stopped after a while, but the sickness got worse as time progressed. He stopped being able to keep his food down, relying heavily on drinking broth to get any kind of nutrients. When even that began making him sick, and the town doctor was unable to find out what was wrong with him, the Stevens took Rufus to a hospital in a nearby city, where he could be observed day in and day out. Then his sister got sick, and eventually so did his younger brother. It wasn't long after that that the Stevens decided it was no longer worth it to keep splitting their time between Mountain Hill and the nearest hospital. They sold their house and moved out of town to be closer to their children, who were practically living in the hospitals at that point. Rufus doesn't remember a lot from this time, spending most of his days in a semi-comatose state from the cocktail of drugs the doctors were pumping into him. He does know that no one was ever able to figure out what was wrong with them. Cancer was quickly ruled out, as were several other possible diseases. He knows his parents were scrutinized by police once doctors began to suspect they might have been poisoning their children, but even that was eventually ruled out when enough time had passed that whatever poison they could have potentially been using would have been out of their system. And suddenly, after nearly six months of increasingly worsening health, it just stopped. Rufus and his siblings got better, 
It started slow, but after nearly a week of recovery, they were all perfectly healthy. Whatever had caused their illness, whatever had cured it, Rufus couldn't be sure. But now, as he stares at the date his cousin went missing and connects the dots, he is beginning to suspect a creature might somehow have something to do with it. The information he has on his cousin's case is minimal, and if what he's beginning to believe is true, he needs access to more information anyway. It takes him only a handful of minutes to get ready, before he's pocketing his wallet and his keys and opening the front door of his house. Just in time to find Dorothy standing there, with her fist raised, ready to knock. Dorothy blinks up at him in surprise, and Rufus does the same as he looks down at her. Oh, hi, she says, taking a step back and shoving her hands into her jacket pockets. I was just coming by to talk to you. Do you have a minute? I was just about to head over to talk to Sheriff Thornton, but you can walk with me if you'd like, he says, stepping out onto the front porch and shutting the door behind him. Okay, yeah, she says, smiling. Works for me. They begin walking, both of them silent for a while. They've walked a couple blocks when Dorothy finally says, So, Lyra told me you might know someone who can help me find a place here. Rufus can't help the surprised look that crosses his face, and Dorothy laughs. Surprised I'm planning on staying? She asks, and Rufus feels his cheeks heat. It's alright, I can't blame anyone for feeling that way. Yes, I'm planning on staying. I don't really have anywhere else to go. Rufus contemplates that for a moment. No other friends or family? She shakes her head. Nope. Andy was it. But that's alright. I know I belong here. There's no use denying that fact anymore. I guess not, Rufus says. He hesitates, not entirely sure how to approach the subject of her cousin. He knows most people don't like dealing with their grief head-on. He's, in fact, witnessed it firsthand on more than one occasion with his family. And he has a feeling Dorothy is the type of person to bottle up her emotions and lock them in a safe, then proceed to toss that safe into the ocean where it can never, ever be retrieved. It's okay that we don't talk about it, Dorothy says, looking at him from the corner of her eye. He blinks. What do you mean? She shrugs. I'm not very good at talking about my feelings, or about the things I've been through. I know you're trying to think up ways to talk to me about Andy, but it's alright. I don't need to. I did my time and I mourned her. That's what matters. Rufus isn't entirely sure that's true, but he decides to let it go for now. He's spent too much time in the past trying to get impossible people to open up about their feelings, that he knows it's not worth it to push right now. But he has a feeling that if he keeps trying, Dorothy will open up to him about it eventually. He's not even really sure why he feels that way, but he does. Why are we going to the sheriff's office? Dorothy asks as they round a corner and find themselves only half a block away from the building. Rufus takes a deep breath, deciding if he's going to try to get her to open up about herself, it's only fair that he return the favor. You remember us talking about that boy, Sammy? She nods. Well, my cousin disappeared when we were young. Nearly identical circumstances. They were both six years old, both last seen at Greensland Park in the early afternoon. Did they ever find your cousin? She asks. He shakes his head. No. She's silent for a moment, and Rufus looks at her. Her expression is contemplative as she tries to figure out why exactly this is important. Lear and Colin told you about the journals, right? He asks, and she nods again. He explains about the elemental cycle, as much of it as he understands, before saying, 
it's been almost exactly 24 years since my cousin went missing. And I'm starting to think there's no way that number is a coincidence. They reach the front doors of the sheriff's station, and Rufus holds the door open for Dorothy. She heads inside, and he follows behind her. The office is sparse, with a couple of chairs set up in a waiting area and an unattended counter in the center of the room. There are four doors, one on the wall opposite the front door, the other on the wall to the right, the other two leading to the restrooms on the left. One of the doors is shut, the light off, and the other is propped open, revealing a larger area and back with several desks and more doors along the walls. Rufus heads to the counter, folding his arms across the top and leaning against it. Tilly, he calls in the general direction of the open door. Dorothy moves to stand beside him, her hands still stuffed in her pockets. She has an old bracelet of Andy's in her hand, her thumb smoothing over the beads as she tries to soothe her nerves. It's been a while since she's been anywhere near a police station, even longer since she's been in one without handcuffs on. She wonders, as they wait for Tilly, how her new friends would react if they knew just how many times she'd been in a place like this, waiting for one of her crew to bail her out. She doesn't know whether they'd be so welcoming to her then, and she really, really hopes she never has to find out. She hopes whatever magic it is that helps prevent people from learning about this place keeps her shadow at bay. She knows there have been a lot of tourists lately, knows it's unlikely she'll be able to stay hidden for long. Hawk is going to find her eventually, and she can only hope she'll be able to keep these people from harm when he finally does. Hey, Rufus, Tilly says, coming through the door in the back of the room. She rounds a corner and hugs him, and gives a polite smile to Dorothy. What brings you in a day? Dorothy knows Tilly doesn't trust her. She can't blame the woman. Anyone with a good sense for troublemakers would know she's not who she's pretending to be. It'll take some time for the sheriff to warm up to her, if she ever does, and Dorothy's willing to give her that time. I wanted to talk to you about Sammy, Rufus says. Uh, do you have any time? Always, Tilly says. Is Dorothy here with you? Rufus looks over at her and she nods. She isn't sure why exactly he's letting her tag along, but she's glad for it. Dorothy has no idea what she'd be doing otherwise, and besides, she wants to help. She doesn't know if they'll be able to find Sammy, but she wants to try. Tilly nods and leads them to the door on the right, unlocking it and flipping the lights on. The room is sparsely decorated, with only a couple photographs and a handful of plaques hung on the walls. There is a desk at the center, with a large chair behind it, and two uncomfortable-looking chairs in front of it. Tilly heads to the chair behind the desk, and Rufus and Dorothy take the chairs in front. What did you want to talk about? Tilly asks. Do you remember Lucas? He asks, and Tilly blinks. I mean, she says, leaning back in the chair. I remember Dad talking about him. I was only a few years old when he went missing, but Dad was obsessed with his case. Rufus nods. It's been 24 years since he disappeared, Tilly. Tilly frowns. Why? Her eyes widen. Wait, you don't think his case could be connected to Sammy's, do you? Rufus shrugs. It's a hell of a coincidence, don't you think? She nods. Let me go get his case file. Do y'all need anything to eat? Drink? They both shake their heads and she hurries out of the room, reappearing after only a handful of minutes with the case file of one Lucas Stevens. She has a couple other case files tucked under her arm, 
and as she reaches the desk, she spreads all of them out across its surface. What are those? Rufus asks. Blair and Colin believe there is an elemental cycle every 24 years, correct? She asks, and Rufus nods. Well, Rufus, I went out on a limb and checked through our records for the past 72 years. Turns out, Lucas and Sammy aren't the only two to have disappeared. She holds out the two extra file folders, and Rufus accepts them. The first one, from 48 years ago. George Sandwick, age 6, last seen at Greensland Park. The second, from 72 years ago. Richard Whitaker, age 6, last seen at Greensland Park. Holy shit, he breathes. Dorothy leans over and glances at the folders and raises her brows. No one ever noticed because no one has ever gone through the journals as thoroughly as Lyra and Colin have, Tilly says. But somehow, I have a feeling these kids didn't just up and disappear for no reason. The cycle and their disappearances have to be related. Rufus nods, feeling a weight settle into the pit of his stomach. Can I hold on to these? He asks, holding up the folders. Tilly nods and hands him Lucas's folder as well. Rufus, none of these kids were ever found, but I don't think anyone, not the Thorntons, nor the Bells, nor the Shepherds, ever thought the influx of creatures and the children's disappearances were related. In fact, it was quite common for a long time that kids would wander into the woods and end up where they shouldn't be and never return home. Most folks believed it was wild animals, but we know the reality of this town of ours. The only difference between those cases and these is that the bodies of these children were never found. She pauses, looking first at Dorothy, then Rufus. I don't know what that means, but I have a feeling they were taken for some greater purpose. You said those things that attacked you last night seemed aware, right? That they weren't just mindless beasts, but creatures held out on finding you three? Rufus nods. What if they were sent here for a reason? Tilly asks. What if they were sent to find those kids and take them back to whoever it was that sent them? Do you mean the woman at the lake? Rufus asks. Why would she need kids from our world? Tilly shrugs. I don't know, Rufus. Hell, I don't even know if I'm right, but it's definitely worth thinking about. Thank you, he says. Seriously. Tilly smiles warmly at him. Anytime, my friend. Anytime. Rufus and Dorothy are waiting in front of Lost Fiction when Lyra and Colin finally manage to stumble down the stairs. They both slept a lot longer than they meant to, but clearly they both needed it. Every time Colin uses his magic, especially as much as he did last night, it absolutely drains him. He's typically pretty useless for 12 to 14 hours after the fact. And Lyra ran. A lot. She still hasn't told Colin about the clearing she saw in the woods last night, and she isn't entirely sure she's going to. Not until she can find it again and investigate it further. Even though it had been a safe haven when she was running from those things last night, she knows that it has to be the product of some kind of magic. Whether it was made with malicious intent, she doesn't know, and she isn't willing to risk her friends' lives to find out. Hey, sleepyheads, Rufus says. Lyra flips him off, and he laughs. Ready for this dinner? I'm starving, Lyra says as she locks the door to Lost Fiction behind her. How was your day? Rufus shrugs. I'll tell you about it when we get to the Bells, but we found a place for Dorothy to stay. Oh yeah? Where at? Lyra asks, turning to her. Rufus's house has three bedrooms. He offered to let me rent the third room from him under the table. At least until I can get enough money together to find my own place in town. 
Rufus rolls his eyes. And I told her she can stay as long as she needs. There's no rush. Larry can't help her smile at their easy banter. She had a feeling they would get along well, and is glad she pushed Dorothy to go meet with him. I'm glad you've got a place to be, Dorothy. Me too, she says. They all climb into Colin's car, Lyra in the front seat, Rufus behind Colin, and Dorothy behind Lyra. The drive over to the Bell's house takes less than five minutes, with Rufus and Dorothy bickering in the back seat like children about how much rent she's going to pay. She wants to pay half, but Rufus knows she's not financially equipped to do that and keeps lowering how much she's going to pay, much to her irritation. Lyra and Colin look at each other and roll their eyes, but they're both smiling. This is what has been missing in their lives all this time. The four of them, together, as a team. It feels like some great puzzle piece of the universe has finally clicked into place, and Lyra knows they are going to all do great things. Renford and Mrs. Bell are setting the table when they enter the house, and they all get to work helping the couple. Once the table is set with tonight's dinner, grilled steaks, mashed potatoes, and a huge heaping of grilled bell peppers and other various vegetables, everyone sits and they all dig in. Rufus explains what he learned at the sheriff's station, and Renford and Mrs. Bell both appear a little shell-shocked to learn that the disappearances might be connected. They spend the rest of dinner theorizing just why exactly this has been happening, but none of them get any closer to discovering the truth. We need to find that woman, Lyra says for the second time today. I don't know how or why, but I know she has to be involved somehow. Is that where you want us to focus our efforts? Rufus asks. Are we assuming she has Sammy? I think if she doesn't have him, she knows where he is. She takes a bite of food, chewing thoughtfully for a moment. Tonight, I say we stick to town. I don't think we're ready to face those things again, if they're still out there, and I want to be sure we haven't missed any vital clues. Dorothy, you'll be with me tonight. Tomorrow, you'll go with Colin, and then the following night, you'll be with Rufus. Then, if you feel ready enough, I'll figure out which part of town you'll be patrolling. Is that alright with you? Dorothy nods. I'm good with that. Oh, Renford says, sitting up suddenly. He reaches into the pocket of the jacket he's wearing and pulls out a handful of items. I almost forgot. He hands Lyra a necklace, Rufus and Colin rings, and Dorothy a bracelet. These are all made of pure iron. They obviously aren't made for hurting creatures, but they'll do the job when it comes to repelling them. And Mrs. Bell made you these. He hands each of them a small black drawstring bag. Lara opens hers up and peers inside. It's a mixture of salt and a handful of other herbs found to help protect against the creatures. Even just the scent of it should keep them from attacking you. It's worked on most creatures so far, so I'm hoping whatever it is that attacked you last night will be affected by it as well. Mrs. Bell shrugs. By the way, have you given those things a name yet? Lyra contemplates for a second. The Merc. The Merc it is, Mrs. Bell says. There is a figure, cloaked and shrouded in shadow, standing at the edge of the forest. They watch the house in interest, listening to the words spoken within with ears that are long and pointed. Their eyes adjust as the daylight wanes, shifting from eyes meant to see in the light to eyes that can only see in the dark. They watch as the four they were sent to destroy exit the house, completely oblivious to the one who watches. The one who waits. The figure smiles, knowing its sharp, pointed teeth are on display in the total darkness around them. If any human were to see their smile, surely the next sound that parted from their lips would be one of terror. 
the last sound the human would make before the gurgles of one who choked on their own blood. Even as the four retreat to their corners of this small town, the figure waits, watches, listens. This is what they were meant to do, for their eyes are not their own. Their ears do not belong to them. Because far off in the distance, on an island in the center of a lake filled with beings the humans have named the Merc, a woman sits at a table, tapping her long, talon-tipped fingers as she uses the figure to spy on her behalf. It's not much longer now, she breathes, knowing that even at this great distance the figure will hear her. Not much longer at all, my sweet. And then, she smiles.